3: Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital.
3: Major, fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington correspondent. Major, that's nonsense.
2: Major Garrett. And you should know better. Thank you. Welcome Major to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this program. Amazing as it is, called The Takeout. And... Folks, again, welcome to My Living Room. We've been here for the better part of nine months. You know, those of you who have been loyal listeners and or viewers of The Takeout, that for a long time, most of this show's history, we were in restaurants in Washington, D.C., and we were lucky enough to get outside of the nation's capital. We took this show to restaurants. Why? My fundamental belief that every conversation over a meal is, by definition, a better conversation. It is a more natural, unrehearsed, less intense and uptight conversation and you can have a lot of uptight and intense conversations in Washington DC and I always wanted to bring that psychic temperature down if I could and a meal is a great way to do that but we can't do that we haven't done that for months and months and months but like we did last week we're going to focus this week on food restaurants the industry the workers and everything around that we talked to Tom Colicchio last week Bravo's top chef top judge great episode I hope you enjoyed it some cooking tips were in there This is going to be a little bit more focused on what the restaurant industry is going through. And we've got a great guest who is very well known here in the nation's capital and the mid-Atlantic region. His name is Greg Kasten. And I'll let Greg explain what he does and the depth and breadth of his experience. Greg, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Tell my audience a little bit about yourself and what you do.
3: Well, thank you, Garrett. Good morning to you. And uh, what I am is a restaurateur and um, all things associated with a restaurateur. I come from a family run business um, that my uncle Tony started back in the 1970s. And it includes today three soon to be four restaurants in the nation's capital, Tony and Joe's next Riverside grill, Ivy city tavern and the points. Um, it has also expanded into distribution and supplying those restaurants with fresh fish, which traces back to my roots coming from uh, South of Boston, working on a little beach town there and, and, trying to harvest the bounty of the sea and uh it has expanded into some of the more future thinking technical aspects where we're also involved in some of that installation and some of that work but everything is really focused around exactly what you had just explained when you came when you did your introduction which is that experience you have at, at your local restaurant where you can see one another and touch and feel one another over great food and no matter what happens in the end you had a great meal and you had a great time and you walk away
2: loving it. You also own something called Pro Fish which is for those of us who live in the Washington D.C. mid-Atlantic area very well known. What is it?
3: Pro Fish is a wholesale seafood distribution and processing company where we take the whole fish as it's caught. Obviously a chef can't buy uh, break breakdown a. 200 pound swordfish. So we will break that down and send him enough weight that he wants in the shape that he wants. If he wants a six ounce portion or a 10 ounce wheel, or if he wants a bone in bone out skin on, that's sort of our specialty. Our people talk to the chefs every day. We're in the kitchens every day. We go from Hoboken, New Jersey to Virginia beach and all points in between. And we
2: touch and feel a lot of restaurants. And what I love about that is you created ProFish somewhat out of frustration. Tell my audience what you were frustrated about. Back in the
3: 80s, I really couldn't get very great quality fish here in D.C. And, you know, our restaurant, Tony and Joe's, was built on quality fish. And we started bringing it in from friends of mine back in Boston. And uh, the next thing you know, I I had a partner named Tim Lydon who came on board and and really, he started helping us source more and more. We started with a pickup truck, uh, and we delivered to I think three restaurants: the Dancing Crab, Vincenzo's, a couple other old names in Washington D.C. Um, and that's now grown into thirty trucks and and you know twenty five hundred customers.
2: For those who are curious about it, what's more important to Profish: the hooks in the water or the trucks on the road? You know, we'd like to get rid of the trucks,
3: and we'd like to make sure the hooks are all dolphin safe, but. Uh, for us, the trucks are more important.
2: Right, because you got to move whatever you pull out of the sea, and you got to move it in a way that is reliable, safe, good eating, right?
3: Yeah, what people don't understand is the big part of food is logistics. You know, the food that people want is not always 100% local. But even when it's local, it has to come from the farm or the, or the sea, and it has to get here. and It has to be kept in certain conditions, and certain things have to be monitored all the time. And without that distribution, the whole system cracks. How are your employees doing? They're having it rough. Uh, you know, both the industries are, are lower-wage workers, and even, you know, in today's world, forty, fifty thousand dollars 50000 is often thought of as a lot of money in the world but it's not so much in the real world. And these are the guys that are really getting cut out. Those are the jobs that are disappearing. Those are not disappearing, they're going away only to be determined what's gonna happen in the future. So uh, they're, they're, they're really taking it on the chin.
2: And there's no way for a restaurant to prepare for a pandemic, is there?
3: Restaurants work on such thin margins that, that when things happen dramatically quick, When it gets dramatically busier, they're more profitable. When it gets dramatically less busy, they're extremely unprofitable and very quickly. And they are cash flow businesses, so they don't have these massive reserves that they're able to take the downturns quite as much as people might think they are. And so very quickly you get into cutting things like a manager's days of work or or a waiter's hours or the cook Right, he only comes in at 10 o'clock instead of 8 o'clock. And these are the smallest of cuts that barely allow you to survive, but dramatically hurt the person that you're asking to make that sacrifice. you almost feel guilty asking them to do it, but you know if you don't, you'll be closed because the banks are going to make you pay no matter what.
2: And yet, if I heard you correctly, you have another restaurant that's coming online. How can you have another restaurant coming online in this atmosphere? Is what I ask myself
3: every (laughs) single day, so... The quintessential foot on the dock, foot on the boat when it's pulling away. I was I commenced work on this in in September of last year and because of coronavirus it was always scheduled to open in May and coronavirus has crushed the workflow and crushed the work. It has now we're pushing on deciding what day to open it, but the money was half spent. So you say to yourself, Okay, do I cut And if it's bait and run, do I let the trap go and and go to the next one? Or do I stick at it? And, you know, I'm a persistent guy. I believe in the long run things are going to even out. I I just pray that it happens
2: soon. When we talked to Tom Calicchio last week, he said, you know, for some restaurants around the country, especially those that are, for lack of a better term, mom and pop, meaning it is one mom or one pop's lifelong dream to have one restaurant – they're facing what he described as an extinction event, meaning they're not gonna hold on much longer and if they go away, they're not coming back. In general, do you agree?
3: 100%, the, the the mom and pop has already been under attack with the efficiencies of massive consolidation. So if you own 20 or 30 restaurants, like a Palm, you're still relatively small, but you're, you're You're huge to a mom and pop and that mom and pop, you know, everybody gets more and more sophisticated except mom and pop can't because they're washing the dishes, they're serving the food, they're cooking the food, I think. um, And in the end, restaurateurs don't make as much money. We look glamorous and we have a lot of fun. And that's mostly what our reward is, is making sure our customers have fun and we have fun doing it, but it's not a lot of money and it's a it's a painfully hard job. And so if mom and pops are, it's demonstrated to them that getting out and they can go back and maybe use their ingenuity and create creativity because restaurateurs are that. um, They do reinvent things every day and they do come up with creative new things. That's why you go and get the food specials that you get or the drink specials that you get. They're going to put that creativity into another place and you are going to see a massive Um, disappearance of that small independent person
2: that's the voice of great cast and we have a food focus this week as we did last week here at the takeout i'm major garrett stay tuned for segment two coming up in just a second
0: what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way
4: This is The Takeout
2: with Major Garrett. Welcome back, continuing our food focus this week and, of course, last week, Tom Calicchio. How great a guest was he? We're talking to a gentleman who is very well known in the Washington, D.C., mid-Atlantic area. He supplies fish. He runs restaurants. He's integrated up and down the whole restaurant experience. He's in food distribution. So he's got a real handle on what's going on now, the struggles within that industry but Greg, Greg Caston is your name. Uh, do you cook? I, I do cook. More at home for my wife and children
3: than in the restaurant. But I can fill in the job as a line. Uh, chef.
2: You can sling some hash, as they say.
3: I can put out a bunch of seafood all at once. We used to do a cookout. Uh, Tony and Joe's, we would literally take a, a truck, a pro fish truck, to the Redskins or Washington Football Club parking lot. And we'd feed you know, 600 people and my cousin Nick and I would cook every piece of food. um, And it was, yeah, I can put it out.
2: Good. Uh, For this, this show will appear on the Friday after Thanksgiving. So I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. Uh, I'll give you a chance to uh, hit a nice softball here, Greg. Uh, It's the day after Thanksgiving. People have had their fill of turkey in the lot. What kind of fish should they have this weekend?
3: Ooh, I love swordfish. I mean, to me, it's like the fish to have. And what I think is important is it doesn't matter what fish you have. Fish is light and the perfect meal. You don't eat the day after Thanksgiving until later in the afternoon. Then you have a nice settle-in meal, and you don't want something heavy. I like flounder out of Carolina, sautéed ever so softly. Really good. And, of course, salmon's that staple that's so healthy for you.
2: But fish. And if uh, someone... Hmm. asking for a friend, uh, has some amazing crab legs that they just got flown in. Um, What's the best way to prepare them? Well, the crab legs should already be steamed. And I think just flown in crab meat like
3: that should be served hot with just a touch of butter and eaten fresh. The key to seafood is just get it as quickly as you can out of the sea or the river and eat it fresh cook it and eat it fresh so the crab legs you're going to get are going to most likely come in from uh alaska and be big chunks with meat just falling off them just put a little butter and steam them for you're reheating them now so just for about two minutes not much more
2: and if they're in the legs like this uh in a big freezer bag what 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 should i do i mean asking for a friend
3: that's about a cook and make sure you have a sharp pair of scissors and just cut up the line so they kind of open up just like a curtain would. And then the meat will come out in a whole chunk, and it's just so fun to eat a big, long piece of king crab like that.
2: Fantastic. Um, when we talked to Tom Colicchio, he said that it was his impression that we are overfishing our seas. And that's a danger not to just that ecosystem, but to us. Agree or disagree?
3: You know, that's a that's a fair statement, perhaps from his perspective, from the fishing industry's perspective, the United States has 242 wild harvested commercial species and 235 of them are under a management plan by NOAA. The the America is the model of how to manage a fishery. That said around the world, there's a lot of cheaters and there's a lot of boats that come out and do things that are not appropriate and take too much and take it at the wrong time. I would also tell you that aquaculture is making Huge steps. And 55% of our sales today are farm-raised fish, whether it's salmon from a pen or tilapia, they're growing mahi off of oil rigs. They have a flounder farm in New England. There's a turbot farm in Connecticut. There are there are a bunch of ways, and it is cost prohibitive today, but it's moving in the direction that you're going to see more and more of that there. And I think that combined with world awareness can make that issue go away. But he's not wrong. There are many bad players out there.
2: And with this farm raising of fish, is that sustainable? Is that healthy? Is that good eating fish?
3: It's certainly the same species and does come down to what is fed the fish. It is sustainable Um, in many regards. There's some arguments about escape uh, fish getting into the river system and perhaps uh, messing around with the genetics when they mate with those in the existing, that's a bigger issue from a sustainability issue than whether or not the fish can persevere and survive. Um, nutrition-wise, health-wise, d- genetic makeup, they're identical. Um, it, it really, a salmon is the last thing at eight, uh, 30 days, just like a cow, right? And so it comes down to the feed. And that's why BAP, Best Aquaculture Practices, and other certifications have very importance because there are farms doing it right and there are farms that'll do a soybean mix and just try to get that fish out there on the shelf.
2: Greg, in your experience, which spans, I'm guessing, at least two decades, maybe more, have consumers become more either finicky or demanding and have those finicky tendencies or demands made food better? Major, I've been in this business 40 years,
3: and they okay. are, they are um, I'm embarrassed to say, they, they, they are more, um, you know, everybody wants to try something new. So I don't like the word finicky so much as informed. I think more and more today, consumers are doing a little bit of research on what they're eating and what they want to eat. And not all of them, but enough of them that a restaurant, it's easier not to have five different things that are really the same thing. So restaurants will make adjustments to make sure that they're giving that 30 40% that are leading the way with asking the questions. The key, it never hurts to ask. And your server or the owner or the chef, somebody in that place should be able to answer that question, both about food sustainability, food nutrition, where your food came from, how it got here, why they chose it, these are all decisions that the small independent mom and pop, they know they can answer that the large national chain. Yeah, they got a cut sheet and you'll get the 30 second glib, but they don't really know. And those people don't live it. And that's one of the, the tragedies of losing them. We talked about it in another segment.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And. That, it seems to me, those questions, those uh, informed dialogues that customers have with their server and by extension, the owner, it seems to me has changed menus, has changed orientation, has changed the idea that menus read things that they didn't used to read in my experience, locally sourced, either organic or some dimension of explanation about what it is that's on the menu in the first place
3: hundred percent. And I'll give you uh, uh, two quick examples. One, in the eighties, the scallop industry changed completely. They used to use phosphates that would make the weight of the scallop go up. Um, and everybody ate phosphates and the, the, the government allowed them to start doing that. And the consumer realized that the flavor changed and stopped buying them. That market actually crashed. And it was not until dry scallops, scallops with no phosphate, which is really a Uh, a powder that helps them hold water Um, and it's like a vegetable whitener and um, they uh, the scallop flavor dry began to come back and people love them again the second one is what I said about the swordfish in the early 2000s a bunch of chefs in New York got together and brought out the fact that they were hey they're catching smaller and smaller swordfish if we take it off the menu that will force them to realize, them being the fishermen, this is an important fish to us, but we're not going to pay for it if you just go out and ravage the oceans like that. And now I tell you swordfish, because it's a better managed fishery, it's much more stable, it was effective what they did. Whether I like to admit it as a fish wholesaler, I'm proud of it as a restaurateur, and, and those are two examples.
2: Uh, Greg, do me a favor. Indulge me for just a second. We've got about 45 seconds to go. Say a good word about my favorite fish of all, halibut. Halibut's the big flounder. Firm,
3: flaky. You know, there's West Coast halibut that gets to be about 20 pounds and East Coast halibut that can be 400 pounds. The West Coast halibut is what is more consistent in flavor. Um, It holds up really well to a sauce. It is easy to cook because it's thicker. Never overcook the fish.
2: Um, and it's one of my favorites. And it's one of those things that with a simple saute and a few herbs holds a, holds a flavor and eats like a steak. That's one of the reasons I love it.
3: Little olive oil, a little salt and pepper, maybe a caper or two, and you hit it right. In the saucepan, don't overcook it. Remember, the fish keeps cooking after you take it out of the pan.
2: The, fo- the fish keeps cooking, as does this show. Every week, all the time, sometimes we... Reach our arms deep into the topic of food because this show was built around food. Great cast, and it's been great to talk to you. Thanks so much. And we look forward to seeing you in person when we can do that again. My pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much.
3: Thank you, Major.
4: From CBS News, this is The Takeout
2: with Major Garrett. Welcome back. And for those of you watching on CBSN, welcome again back to my dining room. You've been here with me for the better part of nine months and you see on camera two special guests continuing our conversation this week about food because it's a food week. I mean, every week is a food week. We understand that. But this is an especially important food week in America. It's Thanksgiving week. You're watching this or hearing this on Friday or the weekend after Thanksgiving. So I hope you had a tremendous and healthful and safe Thanksgiving. But you know, the show has always been built around food. We haven't had that food experience since the pandemic began to really change our lives in mid-March. But I thought for the last two weeks, last week with Tom Colicchio and this week with our guest restaurateurs and those in the restaurant industry in the D.C. area, we took sort of touch back to home base with food a little bit. So I want to introduce those you see on CBSN and our radio audience. You'll hear their voices soon. Jocelyn Law La- Yone and her daughter Simone Jacobs Jacobson, forgive me. They own a Burmese restaurant in Washington called Thamee. I hope I did that right. A lot of words there that are a little outside of my comfort zone. So, Jocelyn, Simone, say hello.
0: Hi. Well, hello. <laughs> did I do
2: okay on the restaurant name? You did perfect. <laughs> great. Yeah. <laughs> I guarantee you it's all downhill from here then. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> Jocelyn and Simone, it's great to have you with us. Uh, Jocelyn, starting with you, and then Simone, tell us a little bit about the restaurant and importantly, your restaurant experience during the pandemic for you, your employees, and your customers. Uh,
0: well, uh, we started this. Um, it's named the me, which means daughter. And so, Simone is my daughter. I have another daughter. This is uh, one word that they knew growing up in Burmese. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's very meaningful. Um, and we, you know, really had a wonderful uh, restaurant where people came from all walks of life and really enjoyed um being with us and learning about Burmese food and, and you know, all the hospitality that went with it. Um, then, as we all know, we got the you know, rug pulled out um, from under us. So uh, what saved us, I think, for you know, set us up for survival is an amazing team and the most wonderful people and community um, that supported us. And, you know, so we were really fortunate in that sense and um, have, you know, really been um, struggling, but incredibly um, happy to have everybody just, you know, stand behind us. Um, so we, you know, we we've transitioned, I suppose you could call it, or trying to move from survival to thriving um, by going out. Um, and this is not an unusual concept in Burma, you know, even if you um, are cooking a very elegant meal at home, you might run out to the, you know, the toothless vendor down the street and get something very exciting that you want to get from carryout. So it's, it's, you know, it's part of our culture and, you know, we, we are, that's what we're doing right now and um, really enjoying cooking different things um, that would, not have been in the menu, on the menu and some old, you know, um, specials too that people really wanted to see. So that's where we are. And, you know, um, Simone will add all the, you know, other fun things that we've been
2: doing too. So, <laughs> yeah, so the, Simone, yeah. add away, add away, please.
1: Yeah, no pressure. I mean, I'm the Thami, right? So um, my job often is really trying to figure out how do we make Burmese food accessible to the widest possible audience. And before we owned Thami, we had a small bodega. So we had a little Burmese cornerless corner store inside of a food hall here. And so it took us four years to try different dishes. Uh, We were really known for making faluda, which is a layered dessert drink from Southeast and South Asia and all throughout the Middle East. And so from being Faludawalas or Faluda sellers, uh, we had this opportunity to have this restaurant. And within less than a year, we were on a lot of national lists. We were voted the D.C. Eater um, Restaurant of the Year. And so it showed me that, you know, as D.C.'s only Burmese restaurant, people really did want what we were serving and they wanted it, in this environment that we were able to create. you know, We had an in-house music director, we had a cocktail program. These are things that are unusual for Southeast Asian restaurants and are gaining popularity, but we were part of that very exciting, we are part of that very exciting wave of South and Southeast Asian restaurants kind of coming into their own. I think a lot of Americans are familiar with Japanese, Chinese, Korean, even Thai, which is our neighbor. Um, but you know, Burmese is still something very new and fresh. And so I think the pandemic um, really hit us hard because we were at the peak of our stride. And so you know, some of the some of the more heartbreaking parts of this process have been in having to lay off our staff, having to drastically reduce our operations. We're seeing a lot of opening and closing all throughout America for restaurants. and so, for us, you know, 10% or 50% capacity wasn't going to work. The type of hospitality that we do with 12 seats at the bar, 12 out of 40 gone, and then cut that in half and then cut it into quarters. Um, And then, you know, we also have a grandma chef. And so we have an open kitchen. We have to keep everybody safe. And takeout and delivery has been one strategy. We've also been very fortunate to work with World Central Kitchen. We got to work with the Power of 10 initiative and we provided over 4,000 free meals to members of our community and specifically healthcare workers at the DC jail um, where I had taught before. So we had a relationship with the jail Um, All of these things have allowed us to keep some momentum and keep top of people's minds as they're thinking about pizza and pasta. We're hoping that they're also thinking about Burmese food now. Um, And so we are doing a very exciting collaboration with Rezi and American Express coming up first week in December with our music director, Marcus Moody. Um, And we're very, very excited to be able to, you know, do pop-ups with other chefs and you know, somehow, in the in the chaos and the rubble, is also some alchemy. It's pushed our team to be more creative, and to continue to say, you know, the American culinary landscape needs a Burmese restaurant like The Me, and we hope that uh, Washington D.C. continues to agree with us until we can open our doors and offer them full service dining again.
2: Excellent. So geography is not my specialty, but in general. Burma, also known as Myanmar, you've got Bangladesh to the west and India farther to the west, China to the north, if I know my geography roughly correctly, Thailand to the south and east, Laos and Cambodia, and then Vietnam to the east. Do I have that just about right? Uh,
0: We don't have Cambodia, but we do have China.
2: Okay. Um, Yeah. And what are the influences on Burmese cuisine in general? Do they come from any distinctly part of that geography around you, or do they start there and sort of spread out? How would you describe that?
0: Well, it's, um, you would get sort of, you know, little bits and pieces of all the cultures around you, um, but it's not specifically Thai or specifically Indian. It's, it's a Burmese, you know, don't forget Burmese, you know, has been sort of cut off from their neighbors for, for quite a while. Right. So you won't really have collaborations and, you know, this real way of let's, you know, beg, borrow and steal from each other. It's, uh, you know, it's really very um far away from each other in a sense but what we are influenced by is all these tribes Um, and we have you know over uh, 130 tribes and all their different languages and they might have some you know overlap with countries um, that we border with Um, but they're fascinating in and of themselves so I would say you know maybe somebody from Thailand would say oh this looks familiar tastes familiar, but it's really from a tribe that borders Thailand. Um, So, you know, that's the sort of thing that you would see, but not really, we don't share dishes or anything like
2: that. More on Burmese culture, Burmese cuisine with Jocelyn Law-Yon and her daughter, Simone Jacobson. Me is their restaurant here in Washington, D.C. We're going to continue our conversation about food. Life in D.C., life in the restaurant business, getting through the pandemic and getting on the other side. I'm Major Garrett. Stay tuned for segment four of The Takeout in just a second. The Takeout with Major Garrett is brought to you in part by Kansas City Steaks. Visit KansasCitySteaks.com today and use code sizzle 2020 at checkout.
0: Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
4: From CBS News, this is The Takeout
2: with Major Garrett. You know, when I named the show The Takeout um, three years ago, more than three years ago, uh, I didn't know that takeout would become such a dominant part of our lives during the pandemic. That is a pure coincidence. But I want to talk to the, to our guests about that phenomenon, taking a sit-down restaurant and trying to convert it and the customer base and how you orient all of your staff, your menu, and your procedures to that new reality. So I want to talk to Jocelyn law Yone and her daughter, Simone Jacobson. They are the co-owners of Thami, Burmese restaurant here in Washington, D.C., Simone, walk my audience through that transformation because I I imagine there were some difficulties or just some adjustments that you had to make to learn how to make this, what feels to me like a pretty big shift.
1: Yeah, it is a huge shift. And I think that, you know, uh, if you had told us on March 16th that this was going to go on this long, none of us would have believed that. No, so, none of
2: us would have believed it on any level, exactly.
1: On any level. And there was no way to predict it. There was no way to plan for it. And so the metaphor that we use a lot on our team is imagine building a ship, a rocket ship, or an airplane as you also have to fly it. And that has been a lot of our experience throughout this process is what do we do right now, right? Right now the mayor says shut it down, so we shut it down. What do we do tomorrow? What do we do the next day? And with the information and some of it misinformation, some of it inconsistent um, and not a universal application, if you think about things like liquor licenses or health codes, you know everyone gets the same standard. And so then you adapt what you're doing to that standard. That has not been the case in the United States. And so a lot of uh, cities, communities, restaurants, small businesses, we've kind of been left to figure it out on our own. Nobody is doing the same thing. Um, I've just driven across the country on sort of a research trip to see what other restaurants are doing. And the thing that's been breaking my heart the most is even the Michelin starred and the fine dining restaurants, inside the restaurant is converted into a storage closet because there is this temporary it's almost like you moved into a house but your furniture hasn't arrived or all your furniture arrived all at once but you have no kitchen supplies you know it's sort of this um scenario where we still don't know how how much longer so do we make a big investment to for example winterize an area uh only to then not be able to use it that's sort of one of the common themes we've seen recently and
2: and by winterize you mean maybe put some sort of tenting out there with some
1: heaters heaters.
2: and that's an elaborate thing that's something you have to tie down and you have to maintain and supervise on a day-to-day basis that's an investment in not only money but time and staff
1: and then of course the the public health element of it the exposure is it worth it Um, for us you know the answer has always been no From day one, it was not worth it to us to put our people at risk. The way our space is set up, it's an open kitchen connected to an open bar. We cannot use the bar. We don't want customers passing the kitchen, putting our staff at risk, our staff putting anyone else at risk. We've tried to keep our operations small and highly regulated. We do a temperature check every day of our staff. I mean, even just that small procedure, right? There was, do you use the oxometer? Do you use the temperature? What temperature logs? How often? All of these things, you know, we're not virologists. We're not infectious <laughs> disease specialists or doctors. I had a reporter ask me the other day, well, do you think that outdoor dining is safe? And I said, how can we know? You know, we're not, <laughs> that's not our area of expertise. Um, so it has been really challenging Above and beyond, not not because of the customers, our customers have been so loyal and supportive, so much outpouring of how can we do more? You know, if we did a meal kit, they bought it. If we sold sweatshirts, they bought them, you know anything they could do gift cards to support us. But I do think that it's really a little bit um, it's it's really something to consider should the diners bear the burden of keeping small businesses alive, or should it really be a larger social effort? And by that, I mean, do we need more support in a substantial way financially and logistically, right? To say, this is the type of PPE you should use. This is the type of procedures you should have. You know, our restaurant associations have been working around the clock, both locally and nationally, to try to help us. But if we're not all doing the same thing, it's sort of like there've been some memes circulating that say, you know, you feel like you're the kid in class that's not cheating and everyone else is cheating. If one business does it but another doesn't and they're right next door to each other or they're in the same city in DC, we have such a porous border between Virginia and Maryland and DC. So our numbers are only as good as theirs and anyone who travels in and out of the city. So there are all those factors to consider. I think what has been really helpful to us is that uh, the DC restaurant community is small and mighty and supportive. We've been able to work together to you know, um, advocate for the industry and to say to our landlords, we need help. But to be able to send that message in an op-ed in the Washington Post with 50 you know, we've had each other's backs. You know, we really have taken care of each other, but that only goes so far. And a lot of us are only going to be able to survive a little bit longer with this hard winter if we don't get support from the federal level.
2: And Jocelyn, before we go, I want to talk to you because I know you've lived another professional life. As I understand it, you work for World News Tonight with Peter, no, Frank Reynolds, if I understand Frank correctly.
0: Reynolds, a you, long yeah. time ago.
2: <laughs> Yes, you, you, you had a life in, in journalism. You had other careers. Um, what have you found most enjoyable about being a restaurateur, being a chef? Um, And how would you compare that with your life uh, in the news business? Because both have deadlines, both have very finicky customers, and both have a tremendous amount of demands.
0: Yes, and it's, you know, it it was even further back from that because I'm also a newspaper brat. So this is continuing. (laughs) Me too, me too. (laughs) (laughs) This is really, you know, been in my blood. I think it does make you... Um, you know, very strong. I think that that would be some uh, one way that people would um, describe me. Um, I think that, you know, being able to uh, deal with a paradigm probe every once in a while, it's way, we are way beyond uh, shifts now. But the way I would uh, compare it is and and I am I'm, I'm not sure that everybody's you know uh, experience was like that. I've had wonderful jobs where people really celebrated you know the work that I did and and um, certainly congratulated me. But there is a there's a certain kind of element that is missing in some of these you know uh, restaurant shows and and um, yeah everything that we're all trying to you know grab at now um, is that. Even with you know fine dining, there's one thing that's missing that we had at the meet, um, and hope that we will have again. And you know, as um, as as hard as that is to really describe, we had a team and customers who actually hugged us when they left. You know, there there's a, a there's a level of, of kindness and um, and really like you know love and support that. Um, you, in a small restaurant, I think you have much more of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, immediately you get such a lot of uh, comfort and joy from somebody saying, you know, I need to see the chef. It was so good. Um, and no matter how terrible that your day has been, um, you don't get a lot of that in a lot of jobs. You know, right. you don't get that immediate you know, warmth and and, and feedback. People really um, loved being there. And, you know, our, our collection of stories is just incredible. And that, that really gets you, you know, going <laughs> every
2: night. Kindness, love, and support. Every good restaurant has it. Um, we're all struggling to reconnect with that. I want to thank our guest, uh, Jocelyn Law-Yong, and her daughter, Simone Jacobson. To me, is their restaurant And before I let them go, I want to let everyone know they're also, in their own right, kind of mini food celebrities because they won guys' grocery games. If you don't know what I'm talking about, look it up on the Food Network. Anyway, it's been great to have you with us. For our radio audience, going to say farewell for this week. For those on CBSN and our podcast platform, stay tuned to the Takeout Outtake, Especial. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you again next week.
4: CBS News. This is The Takeout
2: with Major Garrett. To be specific, your takeout outtake especial. I'm Major Garrett. We're continuing our conversation all about food. As you know, if you've been with the show for any length of time, food is a central part of The Takeout. It's part of the Washington conversation I try to have each and every week. And you also know for so many months, going on nine months now, the centerpiece of this entire show, having the conversation at a restaurant, has not existed, but we have persevered just like you have. We've gone on, we've created a show every single week, but again and again and again with a couple of variations it's been from my dining room. Well, welcome back again to my dining room. But what we did last week, talked to Tom Calicchio, top chef on Bravo, top judge of that show. We're continuing our conversation about food and with a specific focus on D.C. restaurants. And I want to bring into our conversation... Someone you've never heard before, possibly. I'm just meeting him for the first time, Juan Carlo Parkhurst. His restaurant is La Famosa here in Washington, D.C. Juan Carlo, it's great to meet you. Likewise. Pleasure to meet you, Major. Thank you for having me. What is your cuisine at La Famosa? So uh, at La
4: Famosa, we focus on La Cocina Criolla, which is uh, Puerto Rican cuisine. Uh, It translates pretty much to Creole cuisine. Um, So obviously Puerto Rican cuisine is... uh, a mashup of African, European, and Native Taino influences.
2: And if I'm going to go there for one of your specialty entrees, what am I going to find? Uh, you're going to find everything. We're, we're an all-day program major, so we
4: do breakfast all the way through dinner. So we open up early and, and go through on uh, throughout the night. So everything from uh, composed sandwiches to full-on uh, dishes, like uh, chio frito, like whole crispy snapper, uh, chuleta can-can, which is uh, very classic in Puerto Rico, um, which is like a rib and loin chop. Um, so we do a lot of different things. And uh, if you just want to come in for like picadera, like small appetizers and finger food, or, or sit down for something a little bit heavier, uh, we pretty much cover the whole gamut and a uh, pretty good representation of what the food of Puerto Rico is.
2: So if I'm thinking of Creole or Caribbean-inspired cuisine, I'm thinking spices, jerked meats, things like that. Are there less influences of tortillas, rice, beans in Puerto Rican cuisine?
4: So 100 percent, we're very much um, legume and rice heavy, but no tortillas per se. Um, and we don't, um, as a culture, typically eat very spicy. I do take some liberties on my menu. <laughs> Good. Um, obviously my palate has, has, has changed over, over my years here in, in, in the States. Um, and I have introduced um, some spicier components that perhaps you wouldn't traditionally find in Puerto Rico. Um, but yeah, it's very robust, very well seasoned and very, very, um, fresh food. Um, but we do not typically, uh, cook spicy in Puerto Rico.
2: Got it. And, um, what's a specialty Puerto Rican cuisine breakfast? So, um, we make our own Mallorcas. Mallorca
4: is like a, a sweet kind of egg roll. Uh, imagine almost like a cross between like, a, a Danish and challah bread, believe it or not. Wow, okay. um, and we do a great mañanero, which is a ham, egg, and cheese on that. Um, we also do a montadito de morcilla, which has blood sausage and egg and guava. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we definitely put our own kind of spin on things. Um, but like I said, everything should be pretty recognizable if you've been to Puerto Rico.
2: And is there a sweet and savory dimension to this? It sounds like certainly there is for breakfast. And I'm wondering if that's something thematically that goes through all meals of the day. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a, quite a few issues. Like we have a, a new hamburger on the menu called El
4: Gordito, uh, which also is, is on that Mallorca roll. Um, so it's kind of that confectioner's powdered sugar on the roll and, and, and the burger itself. And we do all, in Puerto Rico, like our ubiquitous sauce, believe it or not, is mayo ketchup. Um, so <laughs> that's found out <laughs> as well. Um, but yeah, sweet and savory are, are definitely components uh, of, of our culture, of our cuisine.
2: And you opened, if I recall correctly, because we had this conversation just before we started taping, during the pandemic. True? Very true. We opened up on September 14th. Okay. Walk me through that process, because that had to be a risk, but also a belief in something. And there had to be a a million calculations, some with certainty and some you're kind of riding on water.
4: Yeah, I think... Like, like any business person, you know, we, we had flushed out our business plan. We had settled on location. And, and to be very honest, Major, most likely if we didn't have uh, a lease commitment and we hadn't broken ground in terms of construction, we probably would have delayed the project. You know, the you know, smart minds would have probably said, hey, it's not the time to do it. Um, but we were in uh, pretty deep. Um, And and we just made that calculus and and decided that let's move forward. We're still a very unique concept in the area. Um, Obviously, um, we want to adhere to and make sure that everyone is safe and taking precautions during this time. Um, But we've been lucky, knock on wood, um, that La Famosa has been well received. And we're not thriving by any means, um, but we're definitely, um, you know, above water. And we're very thankful for that because it is a very challenging time. And as you know, the the industry is tough as is. It uh, is. And doing it now is even harder.
2: And if I heard you correctly, it's like we've sunk the X number of dollars into this and we can either just eat that, which is the last thing you want to eat in the restaurant business, sunk right. cost, or open, brave it out, get some revenue in and begin to build a base for whenever this ends in twenty twenty one. That's correct. Uh, I mean, that was the bottom line. You know,
4: our goal is to survive through winter. Um, fantastic news on, on the fact that you know vaccines seem to be on the way. Um, a little scary. Obviously, we're we're not doing well as a nation in regards to our our current response and the amount of cases that are going on. You know, D.C. has announced uh, more restrictions coming mm-hmm. up in the next couple of weeks as yep. as, as in Montgomery County. So it's tough. But yeah, we 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 took that decision and said, you know, it's it's. Let's brave it through and, and get through that, that winter season. Um, and we hope to be here to welcome people once baseball returns and, and, and normalcy hopefully comes back.
2: Right. And where are you in the District of Columbia? So we're,
4: we're at Navy Yard. We're right on the corner of 4th and Tingey, right next to Navy Yard itself. Um, so we're a stone's throw away from the stadium, baseball stadium. It's such an incredible neighborhood. My business partner and I have been down here for a little bit over six years. Uh, He has another concept in the area. We're super bullish on it. Um, It's just one of those incredible areas of D.C. that that seems like it's going to continue to grow and develop. Um, So we're really happy to be here and and we love the community.
2: It's not just Nats Park, though. It's Audi Stadium where D.C. United plays. True. Right. Correct. So And uh, and, and so it's foot traffic plus neighborhood. It's foot traffic, it, it's
4: residential, there's a small amount of business and obviously a very good government base, even though they're, they're operating at about 10% capacity right now. Um, but yeah, it's just got great density
2: and, and great energy overall. So what are you doing in terms of dining? Is it all outdoors? Is it a teeny bit indoors? Is most of what you're generating via takeaway or takeout?
4: So... Right now, um, as it stands, until December 14th, we're allowed to operate at a 50% capacity uh, with no bar. Um, So basically that limits me to about six tables inside, which is about 30 covers, 30 people. Um, And then our patio can accommodate up to about 50. So right now, as weather permits, um, we do quite a bit of outdoor dining. um, and, And those people that do choose to feel comfortable inside the restaurant, are allowed to sit here and, and follow the proper rules and etiquette of, of, of how we need to operate in COVID-19 to stay safe. Um, as a new restaurant, you know, it's curious that you ask. You know, we're, we're new to the block. So if you're scrolling around on Uber Eats or DoorDash or what have you, you just might not know what La Famosa is. And, and even then, you know, are you going to take a risk on, on trying a cuisine that perhaps you've never had? So we are slowly building that up. Um, But obviously the best way for us to build that exposure is through people coming through the restaurant. So that, that has been a challenge. Um, We are seeing um, an increase in carryout um, and our food does travel incredibly well. Um, But yeah, that's definitely one of our main concerns as we go down to 25% occupancy and potentially full lockdown. If that occurs, that'll definitely be something that we'll we'll have to deal with.
2: Right. I mean, as I gather it, talking to other Restaurant folks, Juan Carlo, the idea is, wow, the vaccine is coming, but we're probably going to have to grit our teeth and cut every cost that we can and hold on, basically just hold on through November, December and January and hope there's a break in the sort of lockdown mentality and approach in February.
4: Yeah, I mean just boils down, you know, it's a tough game to be in, um, rent and labor or prior to big cost yep. yeah. in industry. And it's tough for small businesses, you know, our, our staff, they're our family, you know, we employ typically under 50, 50 employees in, in restaurants of, of our size, those people become part of our extended family. And, and so it's challenging to kind of balance hours and making sure that people are being taken care of and at the same time being responsible you know to the business and being able to survive and being able to take care of of your stakeholders in in that regard. Um it's definitely a very tough balancing act um that that we're
2: we're all dealing with. So so much of food reflects the history of the culture around it. For those in my audience who might wonder, well how did Puerto Rican cuisine come about? Because what's the history behind it? Give us a a little brief synopsis of that.
4: All right, we'll, we'll go down that road. Uh, you know, Puerto Rico, we have a very unique relationship with, with the U.S. Um, right. Since since our our you know our founding people are our Taíno Indians, uh, they're part of the Arawak Indian uh, group. Um, we've never been an independent nation. You know, we were um, a colony of Spain. Uh, the U.S. acquired us in, in the Spanish American War. Um, So we've never had kind of an independent um, being as a nation. We're still incredibly independent people, um, very patriotic, um, patriotic not only for Puerto Rico, but also for the for the mainland, the states, uh, many of us. Our cuisine is, is super unique in the sense that you take those influences from from the Indian culture the African culture predominantly, and then the European culture, the the French, the Dutch, the Spanish, they've all had their role to play in in the Caribbean. Um, and so using those kind of indigenous ingredients, whether it be different fruits, tropical fruits, pineapple, citrus, all the things that we were able to historically harvest on the island, which sadly we do not anymore. Um, and we can go into that deeper. Puerto Rico produces very little produce and agriculture, sadly, anymore, um, because of the boom in sugarcane, um, you know, those, those kind of flavors kind of all, all homogenized. But our food is, is one of, of struggle. It's one of, of its a very humble origin, um, lots of stews, um, kind of pork heavy dishes in a, in a sense, um, food of poverty. Um, but at the same time, as is it, as it's evolved, you know, we, we've taken these flavors and, and created a very, very palatable and exciting cuisine, you know, everything from the ubiquitous mofongo, um, mofongo is a, a traditional smashed plantain dish, um, arroz and habichuelas, you know, rice and beans, super, super typical. Um, and then all our other, you know, what the bounty uh, that the area provides us, you know, being an ocean, surrounded by ocean, all the seafood. Um, so it's, it's really developed into a really unique um, cuisine. And, and again, I'm biased, obviously, as a Puerto Rican, but super flavorful. And I think people, you know, overall enjoy it.
2: Well, I think it's fair to say that uh, food of poverty is also food of love and food of community because you have to have both to survive. Um, Before I let you go, you said something that made me sad a moment ago. No bar, meaning there's no one at your bar. Uh, People who have any familiarity with the show know that I'd like a drink or two. So before I let you go and before you say farewell to our audience, uh, let them know if there is one, a kind of great or cool or super enjoyable Puerto Rican drink.
4: Yeah, so, you know, you've all heard of the piña colada, right? Yeah, I
2: think I've heard of that.
4: <laughs> La Famosa is actually, it's not that we're not humble. It mean, it's a famous one, but it's a canning company that my family used to own in Puerto Rico. We brought Coco Lopez to market in the 60s. So, of course, we have a phenomenal piña colada. But more importantly, my beverage manager and general manager, Phil, has done a great job. We have the Puerto Rico itiki. We do a La Pera fall-style cocktail using nutmeg and cinnamon, and different spices. Um, We use fresh juices and nectars in in almost all our cocktails. So it's a super fun rum-forward, rum-heavy cocktail program. We also feature Pitorro, which is like Puerto Rican moonshine. So that's all available to you.
2: Excellent. I will say this to you, Juan Carlos Parkhurst. We will see you on the other side, in person. We'll bring the show there. All the best of luck to you, your employees, your extended family. Get through this, and we'll see you on the other side.
4: Thank you very much, Major. We appreciate it, and have a great Thanksgiving. You too. See you. All right. Take care.
2: The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey.